This episode is brought to you by Scott Keogh Horsemanship, offering a wide range of services from horse breaking and training to clinics and private lessons. Tested, tried and true horsemanship coaching and advice. Clear and easy to understand horsemanship advice. A common sense approach with no showmanship or gimmicks. Go to www.skhorsemanship.com for more information, products and a range of Scott's DVDs. Sport Horse 505 due to come out any day. Follow Scott on Instagram and Facebook. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. From the saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Brett Parbury grew up as a camp draft kid, moved on to Saddle Bronx and then did a complete 180 to dressage. Brett describes representing Australia at Lexington as his greatest sporting achievement to date coming away as ninth in the world. Even though I am not familiar with equestrian, Brett's story still intrigued me. How he shifted from a hard and fast sport to showmanship and technique and immersed himself into the world of dressage. Host Scott Keogh dives into the Brett Parbury story. From the saddle. From the saddle. Hey, this morning, Brett. Mate, I'm well. Let's start at the very start. So your dad, Ronnie, now did he win a Warwick Gold Cup? He won a Warwick Kenning Downs. A Kenning um, Downs, right. Yeah, in the 70s. Would have been probably 78 on a, a horse called Rio Branco. Branco. I was going to say Little Cody. That was Johnny O'Neill. That's Glenn's grandfather. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was a hell of a horseman. Right. So growing up, Brett, were you just a standard bush kid or did your dad sort of show you the difference? Like were you a good young rider? Yeah, look, I mean, like all boys growing up in the bush, you know, I, I sort of came and went from the horses a bit, but it was always there. I mean, my father's just a mad horseman and it's been a part of his life his whole life. He didn't grow up in a horse family. He, he'd found it himself and, and he's devoted his whole life to it. So I grew up with the mighty Greg Lees. He lived over the hill from me. Slippery, yeah. So we, we grew up as kids together uh, on motorbikes and, you know, Slippery had this mad-looking sand dune buggy thing that we used to drive through the paddocks and all of that, but we kept coming back to riding. So so Slip was competing and I was competing in different things, but we came and went a bit. But underlying all of that was every time I rode, I had instruction, and my father was quite big on being correct in training. So that was good. That really served me well later. As much as it was annoying when I was a kid, it's really served me well to have a bit of an inquisitive mind and always be curious about trying to find better ways and, and be curious about getting more knowledge. That that was put into me quite early. Did you attend Pony Club and Junior Camp Draft and that? Yeah, mate. Yeah, went to Pony Club, went to Dorigo Pony Club and, and um, did a bit of camp drafting, played a bit of polo cross, um, you know, made a couple of rep teams in polo cross and really enjoyed that and did the hack shows, ended up, you know, rode a Brisbane show. I wouldn't say I was a great rider. I always had a good position, but... Um, you know, I didn't have enormous success, but really, really enjoyed it. And and it was that pretty much between that and my father really drumming into me dressage principles in training that kind of um, set me up for the future. So even when I was riding Bronx and really focused on trying to be a Bronx rider, I always had this eye on wanting to train horses. So yeah, that was put into me really early. And that that's like that's probably different to most. I mean, most guys, dads, your eras. A to B and get them cattle off that mountain, isn't it? Yeah. No matter how tough, you just, you get the job done. But you, your dad was a bit of a seeker, eh? 
Yeah, that's right. Like he was one of the first guys to to go from camp drafting back to cutting. You know, a lot of the guys like Butsy and Huey and those are doing it now, but he was one of the first guys to come back across. So he was curious too. He was always looking for ways to test out his horsemanship. But like we, you know, it was a really good era in the eighties on the on the coast. So we we come from Dorigo, so we're up in the mountains. But you know, you had Johnny Stanton and you had Skippy McCarthy and I just you know all those guys, the the O'Neills, um, over on the coast and camp after Brucey McNaughton was over there at the time and the the, the really good camp drafting was done up and down the mid north coast. Yep. Um and as we know now it's a lot more further spread. But back then it was very concentrated, like Brucey Hollis and I mean the list is endless. All the famous old yeah. famous guys, you know, that came off the coast. So that's the group I grew up with. And that, you know, together with growing up with Greg Lees and Glenn O'Neill, you know, around camp drafts, that sort of set us up to Pretty much in my hometown, you you went one of two ways. You went either rodeoing or you went into something else in horses. You know, you went into show jumping or something like that or, you know, we didn't do it at all. So for us, it was a pretty natural progression to try and go over into rodeo. Absolutely. I mean, most young blokes hit that 18 or something and the draft is just a tick too slow, wasn't it? It was. I mean, it's a lot more exciting now. I, I quite enjoy going into camp drafts now where back then, mate, you couldn't have got me to sit on the fence at all. Like it was just something happening in the background of the rodeo. Yep, absolutely. But nowadays it's exciting and it's it's really well presented. It's a it's a hell of a sport. So um you progressed in the Saddle Bronx. How did that sort of come about? I mean, again, did you get some tuition or were you just battling along in the novice or how did that sort of work? Oh look, I grew up around Johnny Stanton and, and my father and uh, Tommy Stanton, Johnny's son, had been badly injured by a bull. Yeah, he lost an eye, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. So basically they were just like, if you're going to rodeo, you're not doing bulls. You know, you're going to ride Bronx, and that's what cowboys do. So I never even thought about ever getting on anything. And to be honest, I used to get terrified putting my mates on those bulls. Yeah. Terrible things. But like, love riding Bronx. I just figured that was what a cowboy who wanted to be a horseman did. And, yeah, loved it. Never, never really thought about any other sport. Uh, event in rodeo other than bronc riding. Yep, there's never been a cowboy come riding into camp on a bull or a bareback horse, has there? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I mean, I used to laugh. Like some of those bull riders that I rode with in our era, some of them could hardly ride a horse. Yeah. You know, they just found their way there through through riding steers and the whole thing. So, yeah, it's a completely different skill set. But I, I wouldn't change a day of it. You know, I really enjoyed it. But, you know, still got some of my best mates now are my cowboy mates. You know, it's one of those things you can drive anywhere in New South Wales or Queensland or Victoria and pretty much go to a town and know someone. Um, and you've got you've got this wide network of people that you rodeo with or, or you know, they were stock contractors or they were on the committee. Um, it's just a great network of people. I just miss it a lot. But, yeah, it's great meeting up with them, you know, 20 years later. Yeah, absolutely. So, so mate, when and where did you, you, you hit your straps and, and you ride in Open Bronx and and you thought, right, I'm, I'm going to test the water here and I'm going to go to the States. Oh, look, that had been something that um, a lot of guys had done before me. So I, I come through with a, absolutely probably one of the best eras of Cowboys that Australia's seen, you know. So yep. Glenn O'Neill, Darren Clark, Scott Johnson, they're probably they were probably the most successful. That's in the horse events, you know, and Troy Dunn in the bull riding and those guys and Adam Newman, of course. But they – 
set a, a path. And most guys had either been to Canada or been to the States. And it was just one of those things I really wanted to do. You know, I was probably, in, you know, I was always a bit tall. You know, I'm six foot two and always a bit tall to be a, a super top bronc rider here in Australia. The horses are all a bit small. So I thought I'd test myself against those bigger horses in Canada and, and the States. And, yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, I didn't, I didn't win a lot of checks, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed traveling with the best. I traveled with Glenn, and Glenn was then traveling with Dan Mortensen, world champion, and got to jump in with those guys and go to some rodeos and see how they managed themselves and got themselves to ride well and how they managed their business and just loved every minute of it. But at the same time, you know, once I ticked that off, I felt like that was the end of my bronc riding days. Like that, I was, I was didn't really want to come home and just go down the road and do the same old stuff. Yeah, felt like I'd done what I wanted to do, and I'd put everything into it. Like I, I was always a really good trainer. Like I'd train hard, boxing training, sprint work. Like I was always a good trainer, and I felt like I had to train to keep up because being that bit taller made it a bit more complicated for me. Yep. So yeah, I just uh, felt like. You know, it was in the States that I actually decided. It was a really funny story, mate. Like, we were in between rodeos in the States. I was with Glenn. We had Ryan Mapston, Steve Dollahide, and Justin Washburn in the truck with us, and we were driving from one rodeo to the next in the States and pulled up at a um, servo. We were going from Nebraska to Utah. Yeah. We'd been at North Platte. And um, walked in, and I saw this Dressage Today magazine sitting in the in the shelf, and I just bought it, right? And I was attracted to buying that magazine because there was a big, you know, round horse on the cover and a big shiny, you know, horse and all this white sort of fences and stuff. And I thought, oh, I'll buy that. So I was reading it in the back of the truck. We're headed for um, one of those Utah radios. Anyway, um, one of the guys, I think it was Ryan Mapson, said to me, what are you reading there? And I said, oh, just uh, dress arch. And he goes, is that that English crap? <laughs> and I said, uh yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I like it. And he's like, oh, okay. So I started reading it. And then um, finally, looking back, like that really sparked something in me. And I came home and I just started searching for those opportunities. Like, it, it's amazing what turns up when you put it out there. And um, once I finished rodeoing, I, well, once I decided that, that was probably enough for me, I looked at reining as a as a possibility because I wanted to stay in the cowboy culture. Like I really loved the cowboy way and everything. So I looked at cutting and I was at the time I was living in the Hawkesbury area. So I was living on the in the northwest of Sydney. So I was, I was doing what my job is, which is a property valuer. So I'd been to uni and, and got my credentials as a property valuer, which kind of was always there and allowed the flexibility for me to rodeo and things because you could you could do that at the time as a valuer. Anyway, I was living up in the Hawkesbury in the northwest and of Sydney and and just couldn't quite figure out how to get into reining or or cutting. But what kept showing up was these opportunities to ride these spoiled dressage horses. Yep. And through one sort of connection led to another one, led to another one, and all of a sudden this opportunity popped up to ride a really well-trained dressage horse that a lady had trained and she'd hurt her back. And so the opportunity came to go and ride that horse. And at that stage, I was still rodeoing. Like I come out from the States. This is sort of end of 98. We're still entering here. And up comes this opportunity to go and ride this horse. So I go there and the lady says, look, you sit nicely. Everything's good. But, you know, you know nothing about dressage. I can see that straight up. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, well, how about 
I'll train you for a year on my horse. You don't charge me and I don't charge you and we'll see what we can do. I'm like, perfect, good deal. Did she know her stuff too, did she? She was good, really good, really good mentor, um, knew her stuff, horse was trained beautifully. And, mate, within eight months I ended up, I was the New South Wales champion of um, in Prince and George level, which when I look back now I think, well, how the hell did I do that? But it's amazing when you're naive and, you know, just rolling along learning and I I was one of those guys mate that just immerses myself in boots and all so I was reading books and watching videos and just I was just right into it and I was still entering rodeos at the time and still going right in Bronx but becoming less and less interested so long story short that's how it started and that was in 1999 and I'd had this success in dressage and I was wrapping up my rodeo career and I just I was getting less and less interested about going and getting on average horses in rodeos. So then what happened, well, I just drew a re- really ordinary one in Scone in mid-2000, in May 2000, just drew a, just one that just took off down the pen, you know, like a balloon that you let go. And, and uh, I just thought, that is it, I'm done. Didn't enter again. And at the same time, about probably three months later, I went to Europe and – Left my job, left my property valuation job, got a gig in Europe. This was straight after Sydney Olympics and went and lived over there for a couple of years. So, so you're like you're working or you've got a training gig over there or you – No, I was working. Mate, I got I was down there. So I was – at that stage, I was about 27, maybe 28, and then I was back with the 18-year-olds rolling up the bandages, mucking out the stables. So, you know, I'd gone from – rolling around the States with Glenn O'Neill and Dan Mortensen and those guys and entering rodeos and, and having the ball doing that and trying to be a bronc rider to coming home, going on this dressage path to then the following year based in Europe. And I was there for a couple of years trying to figure out how this dressage is done. And um, like I say, I throw myself in pretty deep when I go into things and much probably usually to my detriment, but this actually worked out quite good. And when I come home, so I got home at the end of 2002, I set up my own stable in Tamworth. That was where I sort of started the dressage stables in Tamworth. Yeah, right. Well, that would have been when Mel come on the scene, would it? Yeah, so what happened then, I, I had a job valuing property for some guys in Tamworth. They were really good to me too. And I was starting off my dressage stable. And so I always had this background of being able to get a job in valuations to kind of support things. And I chose Tamworth because I wanted to be close to my parents. You know, my family got cattle places up in that Dorigo Ebor area. And I wanted to be close to them. So Tamworth worked. You know, Adam and Adam Newman and those, those good mates of mine are all in Tamworth. So Tamworth worked, but it didn't take me very long to realise that I was way out of the action. I needed to be back in Sydney. So virtually by the end of 2003, I'd made the move back to Sydney. And I really, it was really disappointing because I, I really – enjoyed working for the guys I work with in Tamworth. They're great guys. Were you getting the, the right calibre horse there, Parbs? No. Could, no, couldn't get the horses, um, couldn't get the tuition. Like, I needed to still be trained by people. Yep. Um, as much as I'd been in Europe and I'd be, had a really, like, quite a successful first year riding here, I still needed to grow. So I, I went to come back to Sydney and then uh, – Virtually got within a short time got the offer to take on a, a big stable down here where I could you know base myself, and I got that to the point that was in two thousand and two thousand three, 
through 2004, um, and I grew that to the point where I had, you know, 15 horse sim work, three staff. I still was holding onto a, a contract valuation job at the same time, so I was you know, riding six in the morning, getting everything organised, jumping in the car, go and look at properties, come back all night, do the reports. So really running hard. But that's where I met Mel. Mel, a bit like all of us, um, broke down old horse riders. We, you know, the girls usually send us a horse to train. Yeah, that's how it works. And, uh, you know, catch your eye and Mojo. ask a few questions and away you go. And then, so then met Mel in 2004. And then we got engaged in Germany in 2006. Yeah, right. So at this point, what's your goal? Are you thinking, okay, Olympics, uh, like you're trying to go all the way? Yeah. Yeah, look, I've always had a sporting interest in everything, you know. I've been always been addicted to watching Australian representative sport, whether it's rugby, mate, lawn bowls. Like, I don't care. As, as long as it's Australian, someone representing Australia, I'm interested. And it's always been a passion of mine to try and represent Australia. So, you know, isn't naivety just one of the most incredible things? Because, like, if I – if someone had said to me now, right, this is what this is the way you're going to go. You're going to go into this sport, and this is this is what's going to happen to you. I'd go, you know what, bugger that. But naivety just dragged me in there yeah. and kept me going for, for for the last twenty years. You know, trying to represent Australia, trying to be the best I can be, trying to get good horses, trying to work with good owners, people who've got the same goals as me, um, people you know who have got the. The resources to fund what I want to do is, as you know, that's a very difficult part of it. Yeah. You know, I brought to the table what I thought was passion and, and skills, and they brought to the table horses and resources. Yep. And uh, and we've we've had a very successful time with that, but as you know, that that's a hard line. You're trying to walk that line the whole time, trying to keep people happy and, and things. But, yeah, look, I, I was just wanting to get to the top and was in a hurry, and, yeah, it took me. So I moved to that nice stable in, in 2003, and by March 2005, I had one of the top horses in Australia in my stable. Um, I'd won a couple of young horse classes, so a bit lower down the food chain in dressage, but I'd won a couple of national young horse classes, and that got me recognised as someone who could probably do the job. So then I started to get better horses. Yep. And by t- beginning of 2005, I had a really nice horse come into my stable, an imported stallion. And him and I really clicked, and we went on to do very, very well in the sort of the lower FEI ranks, which is like Prince and George into one. In 2005, we dominated that, and then in 2006, I'd taken him through to that higher level, which is Grand Prix. Yep. And we did well, ended up Australian champion on him in 2006. And then that led to other horses coming in, and that's where Victory Salute came into my stable, and then him and I went on to do really good things. Is he the best dressage horse you've, you, you've had, mate? He'd definitely be the most successful. That horse went on to the international stage. You know, him and I end up in the top 10 in the world in 2010. So where was that at? Virtually from 2004 to 2012, I kept making trips back to Europe so I'd go for six weeks here or two months there or you know, I just kept going back nearly every year trying to get more exposure. And you can speak the language, mate? Oh, I can speak a bit of German. Get, you know, when I'm there and get going, I'm, I can go all right. But, you know, it's got to be it's got to be horses or it's got to be something like, you know, kind of a beer, kind of a coffee. Yeah. 
pretty simple, but survival, German, they call it. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'd spent a lot of time over there, nearly half of that time from 2004 to 2012, I'd spent in Europe in one capacity or another. So in 2008, I took him over to Europe to um, try and make the team for Beijing Olympics. Yep. And got damn close to um, end up sort of the non-travelling reserve for that Games and then came back in 2009 with him and just dominated everything, won, won everything in the country. And then 2010, I won the right to go to the World Cup final, which was in Sotogenbosch in Holland. So I married that trip up with then trying to qualify and go to the World Equestrian Games. So in our sport, every two years, you've got a significant world event. So you've either got the Olympics or the World Equestrian Games, and they, they're in four-year cycles that come around every two years for us. So this year's the Olympics, but actually next year is World Equestrian Games because Olympics was meant to be last year. So, And to be honest, the World Equestrian Games is probably a truer barometer of the world's best because you don't have all the restrictions of the Olympics and you, you're virtually getting the, the best sort of 80 riders in the world all in one place, where the Olympics, you know, they take a few from here and a few from there and they try to be fair. Yeah. Um, so you don't always have your best riders there. But anyway, so did the World Cup final, um, end up, you know, 10th there. Uh, at, in the same time, uh, Mel and I, our baby boy was born. We had a, a boy in 2010, so I'd, I flew back and I was home for like a month while he was born. Then I jumped back on the plane. A week after he was born, I jumped back on the plane. I had to go back to Europe and compete. End up third in Rotterdam, which is a big show in Holland and Probably the biggest show of them all is a show called Arken, which is in Germany. Like, it's enormous. It's like Sydney Royal, but it's all around dressage and jumping and eventing. Anyway, I was seventh in that, which sort of put me in that top ten in the world. You know, if you're coming in the top ten at Arken, you're pretty much going to be in the top ten at every major event going on. Um, I won Hickstead over in England and then went to um, the World Games in Kentucky in Lexington. And uh, after, you know, three rounds, end up coming ninth in the world in that. And that's sort of something that's that's been the highlight of my career to date. Um, no Australian's done that. Like, we've not, no Australian's done that from Australia. We've had a girl be ninth at the Sydney Olympics. She was based in Germany. But um, yeah, no, one's, no one's done that from Australia. So tell me, like, the naive like me that don't know any different, do these events pay enough prize money to keep funding you or are you relying on a wage from your owners and horse sales and that? Yeah, wage from the owners or not even that. Like, so basically we we were offered sort of funding because the World Games is always viewed as a, certainly by the Australian Olympic Committee, or the Australian Sports Commission, it's viewed as a bit of a gauge, a barometer on how the each sport's going going forward to the Olympics. So they're offering various forms of funding to athletes who are in training and going forward to major events. So, you know, I was able to pick up a bit of funding. But those those trips overseas are enormously expensive. You know, we, we've done quite a few of them now. And you go over there for four months, you're you're pretty much riding off 120 grand. And look, to be honest, if it wasn't for my wonderful owners that I've had over the years, I, I could never have done that. Um, the owners have pr- pretty much foot the bill um, for those things, so which enabled us to still be able to pay mortgages and raise kids and put kids through schools and stuff. So, yeah, but that was that was the highlight pretty much. But, I, you know, Victory Salute was, you know, your question was, 
was he the best horse? Well, I don't know if he was the best horse, but he's definitely been the most successful. He was, he was incredibly good to work with and train. Natural ability, you know, he probably didn't have as much natural ability as I've had in other horses, but he probably had the best temperament and the best work ethic of any horse I've had. And that that work ethic and temperament overcome any um, physical challenges he had. Yep. So tell me, are we going to see Brett Parbury in the Olympics? No, not this year, you won't, no. I had a horse for it. I mean, I've had a, um, you know, disappointments. And I had a horse um, that we bought in Germany in 2019 when we were preparing for a horse. So so I'll rewind that even more. Terry Snow at Willinga Park decided that he wanted to try and get a horse on the team. So we, after the 2018 World Games, I took a horse to the 2018 World Games in, in Tryon in North Carolina owned by the Duddy family from Tamworth um, and the Mahins. And once that event was over, we went to Europe and found a horse that could give Terry the opportunity to have a horse at the Olympics, and it was a fantastic horse too. Um, Bought him in 2019, came home, started training, did one little competition on him, and then he started to show a few symptoms, and long story short, he ended up dying of lymphoma. Mm. Um, but that was a good horse. That horse, I believed, had the potential to put me back in that top sort of 25 in the world. You know, that's a tough – it's a tough call to get in the top 10 in the world, I must say. That's a really tough thing to do. But that horse, I believed, had the abilities to be in the top 25. Bearing in mind, I just finished 31st in the world on Weltmiser, DP Weltmiser, yep. owned by the Duddies from Tamworth. I just finished 31st in the world and we went and bought this horse and I believe that he was probably just a little more modern and could probably give me what I needed to jump that six places to get in the top 25, which gets you at the Olympic Games from the Grand Prix into the special, what they call a special, um, which again is a really good thing for for, for Australian dressage, you know, to do that from Australia, yeah. that, that gives everyone a bit of hope. So tell us, like, how long a journey are we talking, Bob? So, like, the average age of the horse at the Olympics is what? Oh, uh, I'd say 15. But, you know, you're very seldom seeing a horse at the Olympics under 12. Is that right? Uh, but but they are there. I mean, they're there. There's the odd, the odd one, but but – they get better and better the more they do. So the old thing is, you know, it takes you probably five years to get the horse to Grand Prix. Then it takes you two years to get the horse good at Grand Prix. And then you start trying to win some big events. But so, you know, if you're starting a horse, our horses, you can't really start them until they're about three and a half because they're so big. Yep. So, you know, if you think five years is eight and a half to nine years old, you want to have most of the Grand Prix work in him by then. And then you know, nine, then 11 years old, he's starting to get good at it. And then these major events only roll around every two years. So if your timing's right, you might get in there. But usually it's about 12 to 15. And then from 15, but these horses will go through till they're 18. They have to retire from international sport at 18. Oh, they cap it. Yeah, so you've only got a small window, you know, to get these horses to games. So very rarely you see one horse do two Olympic games. Is that right? They don't come back, huh? Yeah, but then, you know, some, you know, not saying that's impossible, but it's rare. These things you learn every day, yeah. That's crazy. Mm. It's not like just grab him and we'll put 12 months work into this horse and we'll go show him. 
Oh, exactly. That's right. No, it's a it's a long process. Unreal. I've always, uh, I think me and Bruce O'Dell were talking about once, we need to get pubs to put on a, a bit of a Cowboys-only clinic for us. And, and the beauty of talking to you, pubs, which I enjoy, is, is you know the difference. You know, you, you, you've done every end, end of the scale. What, what's something the average bloke like me that, you know, breaks in horses and, and has the odd run in the draft, and you're putting on a clinic for those sort of blokes, what, what would you get rolling? Oh, just the importance of... of you know, pretty much dressage is based on three things. You know, it's the ability to control the pace of the horse. So for us, it's walk, trot, and canter. For you guys, it's it's like canter, like gallop, can, you know, the adjustability of that pace. Yep. But it's in the adjustability of that pace with the ability to be able to shift the shoulders around, to be able to move the shoulders. So, I mean, canter is unique in the sense that you've got your camp work, which – I mean, most people that are putting cutting programs on their horses have got a good horse in the camp. But then you've got that galloping, that galloping after beast element, which, you know, as they say, you can't win a draft in the yard. So the horse has got to get out and gallop. And then they've got to be adjustable. So, you know, it's all about being able to adjust that horse within balance and, and, changing lines, you know, being able to go from this line to this line and then back and then forward and then back and then change onto this line and really get the horse adjustable. And it's no different to what we do. I mean, the dressage test that we do never says trot around for 20 minutes at will, you know. So so why do we train? Why do people train like that? Like what it says is go from here to here and do this, then go from there to there and do that, and then go from there to there and do this. So we need to train way more adjustability into our horses, and I think that's the same as what drafting is. You know, albeit camp drafting is done at a gallop and at speed and with a random object that changes the rules all the time. But the ability to adjust and be in balance, you know, it's no fluke that the best camp drafters keep winning, and that's because they're good at adjustment and they're good at balance and they're good at, well, seeing things before they happen, which can only come around through experience. But they're producing horses that are adjustable, willing. I mean, willing. They're not. They're not beating the the Jesus out of them and taking all the willingness out of them. Producing horses that are willing, adjustable, and giving horse confidence. And and that's really what I'd be. You know, I'd get you guys down there and I'd say, well, this is the goal. This is the sport we're in. You know, it's for, it's important that we analyse the sport we're trying to do. This is the sport we're in. This is the this is the way I see it. These are the three key principles. Now let's start working on that and just start developing exercises that fit around those three things. I could listen to you all day talking about that, Pubs. Tell me, you, you ride warm bloods, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so within the warm bloods, as you know, you, you're from the similar background to me, if you ran into a guy that was training dogs for a living and he said, uh, I've got this pup, I try and take him to work and he runs back home and lays under the veranda, and then when I go to feed him, um, he tries to bite me. Um, he's showing no interest in cattle. Geez, I think I'll, I'll stick with him. But we in the stock horse world, I, th- I think we're in love with these folk tales of the more ignorant he is, that we just got to put the miles on him and he's, he's going to just turn into this uh, superstar. And that to me is something I see every day at my work. The more ignorant they are, the, the more prouder they are of them. <laughs> what about the warm bloods? Mate, will you put up with a bucker and, and things like that, or have they got to be pretty good-minded or they go by the wayside? That's a good question because um, 
to be honest, mate, sometimes those ones with a bit of shit in them, actually when you get some training on them, when you get your program on them and get a bit of training on them, they actually have the heart that you need. Because so what, what happens with our thing, right, is we – when we get to Grand Prix, I mean, I get asked a lot by, by my, my cowboy mates, you know, don't those horses get sour? And I'm like, no, they don't. And they go, why? You know, like you keep them in the arena, you train you train on them all the time. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm making the training interesting. Like I want that horse to get a sense of when it does something urgently and on my aids, it gets a reward. And it, the more it puts in, the more reward I offer through pressure off pressure off you know and through voice praise and you know bits and pieces i want that horse to dig in and have a crack now if that starts off as being a bit of unbridled shit providing it's not dirt and as you as you know as well as i do there's a difference between dirty a dirty bugger and and one that's just a bit naughty yeah um but if i can I, i actually want them to have a bit of rubbish in them not too much because the quiet horse, when I'm going down that centre line at the, at the World Games, my horse is 13, 14, 15 years old. He's had eight years of training on him. When I'm going down that last centre line, I, I want him to dig in and have a crack when I need it the most. And that characteristic usually starts out as a bit of a difficult horse. But there is definitely parameters around that too you know one that just wants to bog its head out of nowhere like it's a spook and next thing it's bogged its head and dropped you they'll only get away with that for a few times and then i'm you know on them can you get one twisted in that flat saddle mate no it's a well-told story i bucked off more horses in my first year of dressage than in my last year of riding bronx is that right yeah because i i, I got every fart twister thing going around because I thought, oh, well, we'll put it under him. He's the he's the cowboy. Yeah. You know, I naively just go, well, you know, I'm pretty sure I can get this one rode. And they are strong and they're big. And when they decide you're getting off, you haven't got much say in it. No. But um, in saying that, they are a different animal. Like, if you can distract them and get them thinking about something else, they'll forget about trying to buck you off. And a warm blood, it's not an animal that you can kind of really knock into submission. You've got to just work with them. You just chip away at them, and eventually when their concentration's on you, you get what you need out of them. But you can't really go, well, right, that's it. I'm just going to get you around my leg here and do this and this. They just won't do it. Like, they're, they're different. They're different to a normal thoroughbred or stock horse that I've ever worked with and quarter horse. Absolutely. Well, I've never rode the high end and, and better bred ones that you get. I've, you know, obviously the lower end and, you know, you, you dread breaking them in. You know, you just, they're hard to adjust to, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, look, to be honest, even the good ones, the good ones have got something, like, they're not easy either. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen an easy horse. Some are easier than others, but most of them are difficult. You know, until you get your program on them and start to get some rules set up and stuff. Now, tell me, you scaled back on your riding. Um, you, you're doing a little more coaching these days, aren't you? Yeah, mate, yeah. So pretty much, um, you know, as the body gets a little bit tired, I'm starting to be a bit more selective um, in what I'm doing. So, I mean, I've always coached a lot. I mean, I coached some great countries. Like I coached Singapore for a couple of years. I was in Japan. I, I coached the Australian eventing team at the London Olympics. I was the dressage coach for them. You know, I've had some great... Some great things coaching, but 
I always figured that a writing lesson or a clinic is a bit, it's pretty archaic when you really think of the way that the coaches work in other sports in this country. So if you if Queensland Cowboys, right, the North Queensland Cowboys, if they turned up the training and said, right, well, I just want to get a little bit off this coach and then a little bit off that coach and then a little bit off this coach because I want to just pick the best parts of all bits and I'm going to make, you know, they get bloody nowhere, right? What trains a football team or a swimmer is a system and a structure. And it goes through highs and lows, as you know. In any sport, you can have good times and you have bad times. It's just inevitable. What's important is in the bad times, you don't change your system. You get a system that you believe in, you get a system that you know will work, like and and that system is designed around those three things that I said before. Like in dressage, the three things is about being able to control the posture of the horse, so neck position and the way the horse uses its back. That's one thing. The next thing is to be able to control the feet of the horse, so shoulders and hind feet. And the third thing is to be able to control the pace, walk, trot, canter, canter, trot, walk, and then the five versions of canter, the seven versions of trot, and the four versions of walk that we need. Right, so that's that's the three things: frame, like or posture, feet, and pace. So once you break it down, then you work out what aids you're going to use from the saddle to control those three things. That's your system. Once you put a few exercises around those aids and those control those things, that's your system. Don't abandon it when things go wrong because things are always going to go wrong. Stick to your system. Be consistent, stick to your structure, and stay with one mentor. And mentor, I believe that the coach takes on the role as a mentor as well. So, and that mentor is everything from just normal life skills right through to performance. So, stick with a coach, stick with a system, and just go through the highs and lows. So, in a nutshell, what I did was we, we've put all that online and we've enabled people to at least get the understanding of a structure and a system and we give them mentorship online and then we say to them, now work with your coach, but every time your coach says this bit of information, go home and put it on your system. Like you are in control of your own training system. You know, that that voice in your head when you're training, it can't be someone else's. It's got to be yours, right, because you own the system. You own the program. And every bit of info you learn in your life, you've got to be able to whack it onto a system and then play it and then roll it and then have that there so that when you're training, all those words in your head are yours. And so we've kind of made that into a very easy thing. called We call it the Parbury Program, and it's online, and it's actually going really well. I've got a hundreds of members and it's not trying to take work away from coaches it's trying to make coaches jobs easier like it's trying to make it that when a coach says something the writer goes oh yeah i get that i'm going to whack it onto the here and then when they come back to the coach the week after they're better at it rather than the coach having to say the same bloody thing over and over and over waiting for that writer to for it to actually arrive because as you know mate sometimes you can say something a thousand times and then when the person's ready to learn it they'll hear it yep um, and I was like, we're all like that. So trying to make people more responsible for their own system and make them more responsible for, more accountable for the way they ride because 
poor bloody horse has to put up with at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, they're going to put up with us. And just trying to make it at least in some way consistent for the horse to at least learn what it needs to do. Oh, that sounds magic. Like when you say structure and that you take the, the standard ridery lines up at the Ian Francis Clinic with the 14 other students, but then what does he do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday after? Like it's little to no structure with the average rider. Yeah, that's right. And like it's got to be that the bit of info that say Ian or, you know, yourself or, you know, Rob Leach or, one, or Jason, any of those guys, you know, talk around, when they give some info to someone, there's no magic bullets here, right? There's no magic bullet. There might be something that just opens it, the light bulb goes off and you go, oh, yeah, oh, that's why that happens, right? No, now I get it. But there's no such thing as a magic bullet. There's just – and not one thing is in more priority than another. It's a systematic approach that these guys will give the info, but it comes down to the comprehension of the student or the, the rider as to how they apply it. And what I really push is for people to try and – just be intelligent about how you take on information and how you apply it because the experiment gets carried out on the horse, you know, and we're all horse lovers, right? So you want to make sure that horse is getting a fair crack at doing what the person wants. So, yeah, I just sort of really push for people to invest time off the horse. Like just because, you know, someone, you know, they may work in an engineering business and they can't ride through the week, they ride on the weekends. That, that's fine. Like I don't mind that at all. Providing they're putting in a bit of time visualising or at least thinking about when they do ride, how they're going to do it. Yep. Not just get on and start getting up the horse because it feels stiff. Yep. You know, spend a bit of time to try and be a more intelligent rider. Spend a bit of time and try to be a, an easier load to carry. Spend a little bit of time in learning how to be consistent and then definitely get the information from all those top guys and try to f- figure out how that works in your system and why it works or, or even better, why it didn't work, you know, why, what, how you can maybe do it better. Well, mate, look, I, I hope the viewers, uh, the listeners here have had a glimpse of, of Brett Parbury. Um, you're so intelligent. You're a student of the game. I love that you're from a, a Western background. You know, you're not a wowser. I can I can call you up with a layman's question. And, um, mate, I, I wish you so well with this coaching. I think you're made for it. And I really hope that people out there, they can follow your program. Now, where can they find it, Brett? Oh, look, it's online. I mean, there's, there's Facebook groups. I mean, I don't go on social media, but there's Facebook groups. I've got a, a really good business partner in it as well. She runs it. <laughs> But Facebook, if you just type in the Parby program, if you go online, type in the Parby program, it's all there. Nat, who runs it for me, she's very good. You know, if you send a message through, private message her, she'll get straight back to you. We love it. We've put over a 1,000 people through this, and we haven't had to issue one refund. Like, everyone feels happy that they're getting value for money, and that's what I said to Nat. I said, look, I don't care what we charge. As long as everyone feels like they get value for money, and the underlying motivation here is that we can give horses a better life or a better chance to, to be trained. That's the underlying motivation. So they can find it online. Like I'm watching it play out now. We've been running this for three years. I'm watching it play out week in, week out with people that I coach normally. I'm just loving the way that they – I can see they're more intelligent riders. Like I can see their thinking. I can see they're breaking it down, you know. And, yeah, I'm just loving the way it's playing out through the riding and through people's riding careers and getting them to prioritise the right things, you know, just getting them, like when they enter a competition, just prioritise the right thing. Like if, if you go to a competition and just hope to get a good score, 
you are setting yourself up for a massive failure. Yeah. Like massive failure. If you go to the competition saying, right, I want to, I want to warm my horse up well. I want to make sure I've got both on both reins. I'm really quick and sharp. I want to have my horse relax. I want to walk in the camp or wherever it might be. I don't know. Walk in the dressage arena. And I want to have it that when I use an aid, that horse responds. Right. And then I want to be focused and I want to deliver. I want to, you know, I want to deliver a good cutout. I want to deliver a good first peg. I want to deliver a good second peg. Whatever it might be, have a goal that's process driven, not just results driven. Like the process will, will actually make the result. Yep. Not the result, not hoping for the result will make the process. So the process, just get focused on a process rather than a result, and the results will happen. So getting people to break things down, try to train and deliver a process, just changes the whole mindset of the competitor. So, yeah, after watching it play out, I'd really love to see how it plays out into other disciplines. And, yeah, I mean, I've sort of had these conversations with with different guys in the top of the cutting world and top of the braining world and all the rest, and, yeah, they're really, you know, a high achiever is a high achiever no matter what they're doing. And they're really intrigued by hearing all this. Mate, I love it. I could listen to you all day, Pubs. I think it's tremendous what you do. And and every time I get off the phone for you, I think, God, I was stupid. You know, I mean, you imagine, let's say a guy wants to win man of the match in the rugby league. Well, it's all good wanting to win man of the match, but what about if you set a goal where right straight off the kickoff, I'm getting involved. First tackle, I'm making it. Yep. And I'm going to control things right there, right there. I'm going to be in three of the first five tackles and I'm going to have a good kick chase. That's right, and, 100%. And I was messing with a challenge horse and and one of my weaker manoeuvres was my fast to slow circle. And, you know, here I am riding around at home around the paddock thinking, yeah, it's, it's pretty damn good. And then I go to a show and it's not good And because at the show it says ride through the gate, do one fast circle, one, and then do your slow. Well, my horse has never done that at home yep. because I had not analysed the sport I was doing. I'd, I'd wait till he's had 20 minutes riding and hum to him, and he slowed down like a champion. Yeah. Well, he's got to do that after one circle in the in the sport that I'm in, and I was just missing the point. So, um, mate, I love it, Pubs. I, mm. I so appreciate your time here, mate. You've been so, so successful, but to me, your, your greatest attribute is you're still just plain old Pubs, and, <laughs> um, mate, uh, I wish you and Mel all the very best, mate, and uh, I've enjoyed every second of this, Brett. No, likewise, mate. Thank you, and all the best to you guys with everything you're doing, and I uh, love the podcast. And we just hope that someone out there got something out of it and look forward to to catching up soon. Definitely. Thanks for your time, Pabs. No trouble, mate. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks to our sponsor, Scott Keogh Horsemanship. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss, from rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors, and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community, and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you. 